Yes, has already been mentioned, it is good for us to come together this Lord's Day afternoon, a bit earlier than our typical Sunday evening time of worship, but we thought that that would be a wise idea. Our elders, together with their consultation of others, that that would be wise today, and we're certainly appreciative of the presence of each and every one. Maybe this evening we've, we'll do a little better on our remote control, so we'll, we'll try to, to take a second attack at that tonight. Certainly as we come together to consider a portion of the Word of God, it is always an interest and a desire for that to be an encouraging and uplifting time for us as we are reminded of the great truths contained in the great Word of God. Tonight's lesson, as you can see by virtue of its title, will relate to the subject of literature. Now, if that happened not to have been your favorite subject in school, let that not dissuade you or concern you. We're not going to be studying it from quite that angle to this evening, but rather we're interested to learn somewhat about one of the major themes as presented in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. In that text, as was read in our hearing a moment earlier, we noted there that the inspired apostle affirmed for us to study, or that is, to give diligence, that we may present ourselves approved unto God. That is a rather remarkable task, isn't it? But it is doable, for we are sure that God never demands that which we cannot do. Rather, as we appreciate that, though, what does it mean to rightly divide the Word of God? Though many lessons could be presented on that theme and on that subject, one thing for certain is an appropriate recognition and understanding of the character of what that Word is presenting and in the way it presents it. Note with me some of the thoughts that I have for us to consider briefly. Notice that that great joy and rejoicing that is available through the Word of God, a very rejoicing which is mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. To quote Jeremiah 15, verse 16, that rejoicing and that joy certainly is not received by those who do not understand it to those who are not able or have not comprehended it. Is it not then clear that when you and I are admonished to rightly divide it, when we are admonished to allow its truths to penetrate our souls, that we need to appreciate the way that that truth is presented? We need to understand the means that the Holy Spirit has chosen to present that word to us and for our benefit. This afternoon, let us spend the next few moments and look at the literature of the Bible from the perspective of noting how the Holy Spirit has chosen to deliver this word to us. I've listed on that same slide. You and I know that literature itself takes on many forms, many types, many styles. There's poetry, there are plays, novels, research articles, many different ways in which literature presents itself. And in a way, that's also true relative to the Word of God. The 66 books in the Bible are such that there are various styles and types and forms of literature contained therein. You and I as wise Bible students would appreciate that distinction and use that to our betterment as we understand not only that the truth is contained therein, but the way it's presented sometimes is truly fantastic and absolutely remarkable. This evening, of course, we'll but touch the surface of some of those literary styles. But as we do so, if you're taking notes or if you're embedding some of this in your mind, 
Think back over the next week about some of these texts and passages and the different literature that is presented over the course of each one. As we begin, perhaps we might note that these different literary styles are literary styles that themselves are not that shocking or surprising because we face them frequently on a daily basis. Think about the newspaper, for example. You and I open a newspaper and we may well find therein any number of articles, but they are written in a specific format and in a specified way. But that's an extremely different way than, say, opening up a textbook at a high school or at college. Though information is presented in each venue and each avenue, the way it's presented is not the same. And hence, one doesn't read a biology textbook the same way you'd read a newspaper. Furthermore, one doesn't read a comic book in the same way that you'd read many other types or styles of things that would be of interest to read. Perhaps that goes without saying, but nonetheless, it's also true as we approach the very character of the Word of God to rightly divide the Word of Truth. Though again, you and I can appreciate many things that might be said about it. Almost certainly one thing that includes is an appreciation for the different literature that's employed in the Word of God. Over the next few moments, let's take an interesting journey. And let's look at a few of those literary styles and types. And we'll let the Bible speak for itself and present that literature to us. And as we do that, we will be able to see the distinctions, the unique characteristics of each one. Let's begin then by considering the first major type that we'll look at, not to say that any of these, of course, is any more important than the other. For anything in the Word of God is eternally vital. It is absolutely unique in the sense of its importance. And so for the first one, consider with me the history that the Bible presents. We're well aware of the fact that history, as it's presented, does so from the fact of presenting factual truths and factual evidences that have taken place in the past. We might note, though, in passing, that inasmuch as history is presented, in the Bible it is not always chronological. That is to say, it is not always presented in the sense that B follows A. We'll note that in just a moment. But notice some of the vast members of the biblical record that present themselves as history. The Old Testament, amongst its 39 books, has 12 books of history. They are, in our Old Testaments, those that are numbered from Joshua up through the book of Esther. If you recall the setting of those books, we well remember that there's a vast array of historical, factual evidences. For instance, in the book of Joshua, we understand that Moses had passed away and as Joshua ascends the leadership of the children of Israel, chronicled historically is the fact that he led Israel across the Jordan River in chapter 3 into the promised land in chapters 4 and following. They necessarily conquered those peoples who were there living and they divided the land finally in the last eight chapters of that book. To say that is to make historical references and notes as to what actually and specifically took place. But that is but one out of those books. Think about some of the others. What does one read about in the books, say, of First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel? 
In 1 Kings, we have a historical presentation of the life and times of the reign of Solomon as king, as well as the divided kingdom and those who reigned thereafter. History. We understand, though, that history is not without meaning. For all that history that's presented was valuable to you and me today as we understand the character and nature of what ultimately would come from that history. The ultimate nature of the Messiah, the Son of God, and the great kingdom of which we are blessed to be a part today, the church. To recognize some of those things does help us understand that that history is such that as we read it, we must understand the Holy Spirit chose to present that history and to focus the spotlight on various members of the people then. Isn't it interesting that David, for example, many chapters in 2 Samuel especially are devoted to David. However, David in terms of the one who reigned over Israel reigned but 40 years. There were others who reigned much longer, such as Manasseh. He reigned 55 long years, and yet the Holy Spirit chose to spend only 20 verses describing Manasseh. We can see then that the amount of verses or time spent does not necessarily correlate to his being a pleasing in the sight of God. For Manasseh was wicked from the core outward. It was such that he did not live pleasingly before God, and even when he made a brief attempt at it, God censured him rather sternly and strongly, did he not? The very thought of history leads us also to note that the New Testament is not without its history. On Wednesday evening, we are engaged in a fascinating study of the single New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. In 28 scintillating chapters, we read here of the establishment of the Lord's body on earth the establishment of the church. And historically we have records of what was preached and how they worshipped, where they assembled and what they did. If we ever then desire to be what they were, we must be diligent students of the book of Acts. For it gives us examples as to how one becomes a Christian, examples of how one lives daily in service to the Master. Thus that book of Acts is a New Testament masterpiece written by Luke who sets before us the character of the life and times of the first century church. These elements of history we begin to see are such that they are read in many ways as history, factual historical references. I made a note at the bottom of the screen. Perhaps we might at least think that there are other books in the Bible though not necessarily cataloged as history that nonetheless does present historical truths, doesn't it? Think about those gospel accounts of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those books present for us the life of our Lord, testifying to us about the miracles He performed and the parables He taught, the way in which He interacted with individuals, and the great thought about His coming death at Calvary's cross. As we read all of that, we can readily appreciate that that history is extremely significant. And those historical books then as literature are read as literature in the form of history. But that history, you see, is not the only style of literature presented in the Bible. Let's look at yet another one. We will easily know the rather vast difference between history and poetry. 
It may well be that poetry was not and still is not your favorite thought or favorite type of literature. But isn't it remarkable how at times poetry can touch in ways that other types cannot? Poetry can reach to a person's spirit and soul in ways that others, it seems, struggle to accomplish. The Bible makes use of poetry, doesn't it? Poetry is such that it presents ideas in terms of verse or in terms of actual odes or songs. Such is true of the Word of God, isn't it? There aren't too many books of poetry, but there are some. For instance, in the Old Testament, we realize that there are five books that are cataloged as books of poetry. These begin, as you recognize, and are those in the heart and the middle of that Old Testament, books such as Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job and the Song of Solomon. All of them are books that do not read like books of history. Why? Because they do not present, at least in a careful and prescribed way, historical evidences and historical truth. Rather, their thrust is to present truth as revealed by God in the form of quaint or short verses, at least in most instances. Think with me about how some of those chapters and some of those verses read. The 23rd Psalm, no doubt one of the favorites of very many. But have you ever paused to think about the literature that is utilized in its presentation? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That text of Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6, notice its emphasis was in history. David was not recollecting things specifically that had occurred during the reign of Saul or things even in his boyhood days. He was affirming the great truth on which he stood, that God was his shepherd, and that he would experience no fear because the Lord was his daily and constant guide. Many a soul has been comforted by that text. Many a spirit been buoyed up by the powerful thought contained in it. Think about some of the other books, though, and what they so easily and powerfully say. Perhaps the greatest example of all of Hebrew poetry is the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters that state for us so many short sayings, but in Hebrew those were poetical in character. In many ways they appear in English in the same way. For instance, in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those aren't many words, but what a powerful verse and thought it presents. Now it's true in English it doesn't rhyme. But in Hebrew poetry, quite often the character of rhyme is present, but even if it isn't, quite often in Hebrew poetry there was a verse followed by a contrasting one or truthful one that drove home a dramatic point. Think about some of those others. In Proverbs 14, verse 12, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
again, that isn't historical in its character. It is ever timely and ever needed, and day by day it illustrates how deceived one could be and how it emphasizes the truth revealed by God alone. The very thought of these characteristics maybe culminates also as we note that the same one who wrote Proverbs also wrote Ecclesiastes. And in the twelfth chapter of that book, we read that Solomon wrote these words. The greatest thought, the greatest character and challenge and charge of life. Solomon wrote about how that the greatest of all things is to serve the Lord. And to do that with obedience, for that is the charge, challenge, and thrust of life itself, isn't it? These things alone, as they have presented these differences between poetry as well as history, we might also note that that poetry is such that the New Testament does not itself contain a book of poetry per se. However, scattered throughout the Bible, both old and new, are sections of poetry. For example, think with me about the song sung by Miriam and the Israelites after their deliverance of passing through the Red Sea in Exodus 15. That was a song. Or what about Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Again, poetical in character. That does bring us to the discussion of Mary. After she was told or informed that she would be the one to bring the Christ child into the world, what did Mary do? She sang a song, Luke 1, verses 46 to 55. And thus, there is a brief section of poetry housed within the book of Luke. There are other particular sections. Perhaps Philippians 2 might be named where there Paul made note of the greatness of God and the humility of Christ in the form of that Philippian hymn, verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. As one thinks about that poetry, we again could easily see its structure is not the same as history. But doesn't that also mean that as you and I study the Bible and we come to a book like Ecclesiastes or a book like Proverbs, we would necessarily appreciate that distinction and read it in such a way to maximize what we could obtain from it. But consider yet a third type of literature, yet another one that appears on the stage containing the Word of God. This third one, what about law? L-A-W, law. You and I are well aware that to read poetry or to read history is a far distance from reading law. You and I could proceed to the Putnam County Library and retrieve a law book and likely we would not find it very easy reading. Likely in the long half dollar words that lawyers often use, we probably would have a difficult time reading for very long and understanding much of it. The Bible also, as it presents law, does a far better job than men are capable of doing. For God doesn't use $5 words as he presents the thoughts of law. He simply and straightforwardly states a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. And that makes it easy to understand, doesn't it? Men are masters at often confusing that subject where laws and loopholes exist and contradictions are present, but God simply said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3. He then went on to list nine others with which we're familiar, one of which was four words, Thou shalt not kill. God made it simple, didn't he, as he presented law. 
that straightforward declaration of what must not be done. He went on to say, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Those were rather easily presented, weren't they? As the children of Israel heard Moses state them, likely there was little, if any, misunderstanding, little, if any, confusion. Are there any books of law in the New Testament? We know that typically as those are cataloged and read for us, there are books of the gospel accounts, history, the epistles, and finally the book of Revelation, the book of prophecy. Might we know none of them are cataloged as books of law. Does that mean the New Testament contains no law? There are some who have so interpreted it. There have been some who have thought so, but they have been drastically mistaken. For we must remember that just because men have not cataloged them as books of law doesn't mean they contain none. When Jesus thus stated that to Nicodemus, for example, and all those that would follow thereafter, that those that are born again must be born by water and spirit. Or when he pointed a nail-pierced hand to the world and said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That leaves no room for loopholes, no room for exclusions, if you will, or men to be able to work their dastardly magic. Notice how often Paul, the apostle, also made note of the specifics of commandments that were revealed to him, and he so dutifully revealed them to, human, to the human family. Those laws are such that we appreciate them directly. They are contained and embedded within the character of God's Word. No wonder that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, Paul made reference to the law of Christ. That law is such that as we appreciate it, it is indeed read as law is read, isn't it? But far better than the laws men may write. These aren't confusing. These aren't ambiguous. These are not such that they're difficult to appreciate. To see the difference then between poetry and law and history is to see the variety of literature that God has used and placed within his wonderful and divine book. The very nature of law itself has challenged us to understand that poetry, history, law are all present, but perhaps there is yet another that we should also note. This one has been one that has caused no little amount of confusion, unfortunately. It's one that perhaps we would do well to spend a bit more time as we contemplate, for law and poetry and history have not been unfamiliar to us, but that might not be true of apocalyptic. What might be noted about the apocalyptic literature of the Bible, and what does this big word apocalyptic mean? Well, perhaps we should realize that word simply means that that literature contains symbols and signs that present truth. It's not as though the Holy Spirit came out in declarative sentence and said, this is the way it is. Rather, he presented it by way of symbols and signs that illustrate truth. In many ways, it would be f something like if you and I went to an amphitheater, and as we sat in the audience and there were a group of performers or actors on the stage, they acted out the truth or the play rather than speaking it. You and I would still be able to appreciate the message as long as we watched carefully and knew the character of the symbols they were using. For example, 
if we were sitting in, in the audience, and there on this stage that we were washing, watching, there were a beautiful, pure, and white lamb. That was our present interacting with other things in its environment. We would rather quickly appreciate the lamb was representative of that which was true and pure and sweet and pristine and untarnished. But on the other hand, if a beast or a dragon were to, say, appear on that stage, we would easily appreciate that that was representative of ugliness, terror, fear, meanness, perhaps even the devil. To say that then is to say that quite often the Bible will use this presentation for the truth contained in it. There are certain books especially that are prone to make use of this apocalyptic kind of literature. In the Old Testament, especially of note would be these. We must ever remember that the book of Ezekiel is prime material that is apocalyptic in character. The 48 chapters of that book present various visions. And quite often as we read them, we will certainly miss the truth if we read that like it was history. If we read it as if it were poetry. Because it is not written in poetical form. It's written again in apocalyptic nature. Notice also the last six chapters of Daniel are apocalyptic. That's the very set of chapters in which we encounter Daniel, especially seeing this beast that rises out of the water. And furthermore, the various heads and the crowns on the heads, we do greatly make a mistake for ourselves in understanding if we read that as if it were history, or if we read that as if it were law or poetry. That's apocalyptic literature at its best. As we read it, the Holy Spirit is revealing the dramatic truths that are contained therein. As one remarks very briefly about that apocalyptic nature, might we note that there are many throughout the ages who have concocted remarkable schemes based on that apocalyptic literature. Those schemes are, er are erroneous. They are not truthful. For again, that apocalyptic nature is not historical in that very sense. It presents truth by way of symbols. By way of example, and the one that would do us well to focus on, it would seem, are two brief mentions in the New Testament. One will make a quick passing note. The other will focus more on here shortly. In the Lord's great discourse in Matthew 24, we have a text that may well be stated to be the single most misunderstood chapter in the entire Bible. One of the things contained in that chapter is an apocalyptic usage of literature by our Savior. If men fail to see that, if they fail to appreciate it, they will read into that literal, literal things which Jesus never taught. And these things are then stated to be what's going to happen at the end of time and the signs that are to hail its coming when the Lord never said that. But maybe after having noted that one, I would urge you to turn with me to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation and notice the apocalyptic literature that, as is, that is presented on that occasion. Revelation chapter 20. This would be a perfect opportunity for us each to recognize that the book of Revelation in the New Testament is the premier example of apocalyptic literature. In 22 chapters of that book, we will remember that the first three chapters present for us the character and nature of the letters to the seven churches. 
that literature is not apocalyptic. But starting in chapter 4 and continuing principally through the remainder of that book, we have one chapter after another of apocalyptic literature. And we encounter vials and bowls and beasts and dragons and all kinds of symbolic creatures representative of the truth that God wished for us to know. Notice again the great hope and truth revealed in it, but it's not revealed by poetry or law or history. It is in the context of apocalyptic language. In fact, if you have an old enough Bible, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, may well not be called Revelation. It may be called the Apocalypse. And it's easy to see how that word now appears. For that is a book of apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic language. Back in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1, Jesus himself makes express mention that this is presented in signs and it is signified by that way. And there's the key. Signified suggests to you and me this is apocalyptic in its nature. Chapter 20 has been the place of residence of so many for so many eras. How many untruths have been taken out of this chapter because it's been failed by many to be understood to be apocalyptic? Let's just begin reading it and see how the apocalyptic nature so easily presents itself. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil, and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they, that, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Even if we pause at that point and review somewhat briefly some of what we just read. We read about an angel who had a key to a bottomless pit and a chain was in his hand. Many have read into that a great deal of literalness. We might note now in careful passing, we are not at liberty to pick and to choose the things that we might want to take as literal and those that we ought to take as apocalyptic. The book itself indicates apocalyptic is the nature of it. Well, as we review then those verses, is the chain literal? The chain in his hand, is the pit literal? Admittedly, it would be a stretch of the mind to imagine a bottomless pit, would it not? And yet, if we take that pit as itself something that is apocalyptic by virtue of its description, isn't the chain the same? Isn't the other matter, such as the binding of Satan, the same? To be sure, it is truth, absolute truth, but it's presented in this symbolic, apocalyptic, figurative language. And oh, how meaningful. Its timelessness is absolute. For every age and every time, it's fruitful and useful to know about the binding of Satan and the reality that those souls who were beheaded for the cause of Christ shall one day reign with him. The cause for which they died will be vindicated.
that apocalyptic nature is something that in fact encourages us. For in many ways the apocalyptic chapters of the Bible are those that contain a great deal of hope. I mentioned a moment ago about Ezekiel. What was the point of Ezekiel's chapters 37, 38, and 39? Perhaps the height of apocalyptic language in that whole book. It was the hope that God held out to the children of Israel. Though they were at that time in Babylonian captivity, and though they were at that time seemingly depressed and in despair, God said through this apocalyptic vision, this valley of dry bones in which he saw those bones revived to life, that is what will happen to you if you will repent and stay at my side. In that language then was the language of vision, the language of future hope, the language of ultimate victory. And isn't it interesting, the same is true of Revelation. To those that will overcome, Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21, you can come over and sup with me and I with you. And throughout the rest of that book is proclaimed the reality of what it takes to overcome this world and all that Satan throws at us and to enjoy the victory that we have in him. You see, when we read about the destruction and the casting of that beast into that lake of fire and brimstone, we know that will happen at the day of judgment when the devil and all those who are his followers meet their ultimate and final end. But is it a sea of beauty when in the next chapter heaven is described as this beautiful four-square city that you and I can be a part of with gates of precious pearls and other elements that are pristine in its presentation? That is apocalyptic language. You see, the various types of literature challenge us to rightly divide the word of truth and to be ready always to appreciate that as the Holy Spirit has presented its truth, it has done so with a remarkable note of what is best for man to receive it. Those things that were best revealed through poetry, he used poetry. Those things that were best revealed through apocalyptic language, he used apocalyptic language. We know that God always does that which is right. That's also true in regard to the literature he has employed. Could we not then summarize or draw to a conclusion her lesson for this afternoon? As the Bible presents the various things in terms of the great truths of eternity, we have come to understand that the types of literature used are not always the same. There are certain sections of the Bible that are poetry. Other sections are law, yet other sections are history, and there are also some that are apocalyptic. And though men may try to interweave and to categorize, we should realize that certain books use various ones of these, even in the same chapter. And all the while, the Bible is its own best commentary. It'll give clues and keys that help us rightly interpret it and to know which kind of literature is being utilized. One thing we can recognize for certain is that the gospel plan of salvation was not presented in apocalyptic language. God wanted no misunderstanding of what was necessary to become a child of His. Rather, He made note over and over that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Furthermore, we must repent of those sins in our life that have caused us to be moved aside from Him. We must confess his name as the only Son of God. And then we must be buried in water, baptized for the 
for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. There may be one or more in need of doing that very thing this afternoon. We could certainly aid you. We'd be happy to do that. If you have become a Christian but have not been faithful and true to your first calling in Christ, realize that the Lord desires you back at His side in faithful service to Him. If we could be of assistance by prayer, by way of encouragement, certainly do not hesitate, but let us be there to aid you and to encourage you in that way. A hymn of invitation has been chosen, has been selected. This will be an opportune time for anyone who has need of a public response to the gospel to let that be made known. Will you not do that then while together we stand and while we sing?